welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. episode 154 of the Proper Mental Podcast and my guest this week is Mark Richardson who is the drummer in Skunk and Nancy and who has previously played drums in The Little Angels and in Feeder and as a child Mark found that playing drums was the only thing that kept him from bouncing off the walls and eventually he moved to London to join The Little Angels before joining Skunk and Nancy after he met the band at the Kerrang Awards and Mark struggled with addiction for many years before getting sober in 2003 and in this episode I chat to him about the role that drink and drugs have played in his life the events that led to him to get help and the three years that it took him to finally stop we chat about things like identity and wearing masks, going to AA and the realities of the so-called rock and roll lifestyle Mark is also one of the co-founders of the Music Support Charity and that's a non-profit collective of volunteers and professionals that are providing help and support for people in any area of the music industry. And we chat about how they got started and the incredible work that they do. And Mark has also been involved in lots of research about the positive impact of playing drums on things like well-being and neurodiversity and dementia. And we chat about that research. And that's a really fascinating part of this conversation. I love chatting to Mark. This one's been a long time in the making, so it's great to finally sit down and have a chat with him. Something that's really interesting and really important, I think, that comes from this episode is talking about the mental health and mental illness implications around addiction and substance abuse. So yes, there is a physical addiction to these things, and we do talk about withdrawal in this episode. But at the same time, that doesn't just start. And it's often the mental health-related reasons that people start drinking and using in the first place that don't get talked about when it comes to addiction. And that's something that Mark does really well. He's incredibly open and honest about his own story and he has a really deep understanding of why all this stuff happened to him and why he did the things that he did. And hearing him sort of chat about that and explore that was really, really interesting, particularly in the context of Mark working in the music industry and being in Skunk and Nancy. You know, they're a massive band. They're really well known, really much loved. So yeah, it was great to hear more about it. And uh, yeah, like I say, I love chatting to Mark a lot. He's a lovely, lovely bloke. If you like listening to this episode, or if you're a fan of Skunk and Anti and you think, do you know what, I'd like to watch this conversation with Mark, well you can, because the video is up on the Proper Mental Patreon page, with loads of other videos that aren't available anywhere else. Some of those episodes are already out, the audio's been released, and some of them they haven't come out yet. And if you'd like to be a part of that community, there's a link in the episode notes, it's £5 a month, and basically you get early access to all the episodes as I record them, You get all the videos that aren't up anywhere else and you get as much behind the scenes content as I can kind of throw at you really. And that just helps to keep the podcast advert free, independent, and it stops me having to do anything I don't want to do and try and sell you stuff that you don't want to buy. So the link to sign up to that is in the episode notes. And if you want to support the show for free, you could leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to this episode on. Everything you need to know about Mark is all in the episode notes. I mean, it's gone canancy, right? I don't need to tell you where to find them. But music support, their website, their socials, that's all in the episode notes. 
go and check that out because they're doing amazing things. And it's always handy to know about these charities and these support organisations because you never know when you might need to tell someone about them. You never know when you might need to know about them yourself. Huh? Go and have a look, check it out, give them a follow. This is episode 154 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Mark Richardson from Skunk and Nancy. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. My guest this week is Mark Richardson. How are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm. Um, I said, like we were saying before, I try not to say I'm fine or I'm okay. I try and actually express how I feel these days, which is uh, always a challenge. But yeah, I'm tired um, and, I'm, and it's a bit hectic. But um, you know, and listening to this flipping COVID um thing that's going on at the moment i'm obsessed with it and uh that's just making me really angry (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah but yeah uh, you know i'm i'm uh, healthy and the sun has just come out so um, oh mate it's a sign well uh yeah yeah, we'll take it yeah (laughs) i've had a bit of a weird anecdote to start us really uh mate Mm. i um Last year, I started uh, drum lessons. Never played drums before. Play a bit of guitar, but never drums. So I started drum lessons last year at 41. Amazing. And um, I'm working towards my, my grade two. And I was in my lesson yesterday. And um, in a coffee table in the drum academy, they have all like magazines and stuff. And there was a magazine with uh, your good self on the front from, oh, from, wow. from back in the day. So That's, I, a, uh, from, that's a while ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your, your blue hair on the blue front. Hair. Oh, yeah. yeah that blimey, yeah. I think that was... Uh... That was this, that was my my second cover, Tom. Actually, uh, yeah, I think I was in feeder at the time, and um, I came to a, a show or a rehearsal studio, and you know, did an interview and stuff. So, um, yeah, it was um, a wonderful a wonderful thing to appear on the front of a magazine. Which uh, sadly, they none of them really exist anymore. So um, yeah, it's a shame. I miss the music press like that. I you know yeah. like. A- certain you know it's just such a huge part of my life was it's how i found every band i've ever been in love with you know was through through those those sorts of magazines so yeah it's a real shame i think that that's not a thing anymore it is it is but drumming really good for you really good for you so good hobby to take up is yeah really good... that's what i was kind of hoping to segue into really because i like one of the <laughs> reasons i i went for partly because i you know i love music and i just think dr- yeah. drums are fucking cool basically but also for like <laughs> mental health reasons right yes a, a creative outlet for me learning a yeah. new skill being a beginner again trying something yeah. new all these things to like to, to kind of help look after myself um but i believe you've been involved in some projects that are like very specifically into the benefits of drumming on the on the brain and on the mind is that right mate that is, uh, yeah. So I'm involved in a research project um, who, with, um, sorry, I've, I've been involved in a research project with Professor Marcus Smith from Chichester University, who created the Clemberg Drumming Project uh, with Clemberg, surprisingly. Um, and um, that the purpose of that was to test, was to, was to kind of, was was just to sort of, not to test, but to look at the effects of drumming on drummers, the physiology, the physiological aspects and the neurological aspects. So what I discovered was when with drums more than any other instrument, what happens when you 
play drums, you're using it all your limbs. So your whole, your entire brain is is sort of firing up. Um, so it's great neurologically because you're making new. You not only are you learning something new at the moment, but you're you're also getting a full body workout. Depending on how you play, that you know it's a greater or lesser extent, obviously. And um, so yeah, so it's good for your brain and your body. Not so good for your neighbours if you play an acoustic kit. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. No, that stuff always interests me because there's so many things that we know that are good for us, like anecdotally, because we just feel good. But to actually know that there's a, you know, that there's science and research into the why, then it can yeah. be really useful to how we how we approach things. I um, my therapist said to me that we were talking about like mindfulness, which is something I kind of struggle with. I have a lot of thoughts. Mm. They're very fast. Mindfulness doesn't suit me very well. And she was saying um, with a brain like mine, she said, you don't need uh, mindfulness. You need mindlessness. You need to do something that where you kind of like, you look up at the clock and you think it's been 20 minutes. You're like, fuck, I've done an hour. And that's like, that's kind of what my my drumming practice has has been for me. You know, I just say to my wife, oh, I'm just going to go and have a little practice. And then that's it, man. I'm gone for the evening. And it's such a nice to get a rest from your own head is lovely. Lovely, I think absolutely and I, I totally understand how that feels because I'm the same when uh you know the the, the rest of the music business um is a is a minefield you know but when I get on stage and I'm on for those two hours that I'm playing or if I'm practicing or whatever I'm just in a flow state I'm not thinking about anything I'm not worried about anything I'm just in this state of sort of of uh of flow and uh, and time does sort of seem to to warp it's very very strange but it's a lovely respite from the from the head isn't it yeah very much so does it help with your adhd mark as well that's been mentioned to me by um, a previous guest who was a a drummer um a a beatboxer called sk shomo and uh, they said that it really helped with um uh, with their adhd yeah i mean i don't have you know, as, as anyone with ADHD will know, you know, you start one thing and then, especially in these days of like a million screens in front of us, you know, you start one thing and then something else comes up and then you you get sidetracked and then you're constantly getting sidetracked. I, that doesn't happen when I play drums. It doesn't happen. I just want to keep, keep playing from one song to the next. If anything, it's the sort of the opposite. It's more it's more of my, my addict side it's the addiction side it's kind of like the although it's not an obsessive obsessively addictive thing playing the drums for me especially practicing I really struggle to practice but um it's when I am playing it's um it's just a very nice uh space to be where I'm not you know flitting from one thing to the next so so that's really nice. Well, you put it wonderfully. You know, it's just a, a good, it's a nice break from the from the thoughts. Yeah, definitely. Did you find that early on when you started? What what led you to drums, Mark, in the first place? Well, I wasn't uh, aware of anything like that. I mean, but I was bouncing off the walls as a kid, and the one thing that stopped me was was playing the, the drums. I I um my music teacher at uh, pri- uh, primary school or junior school. I was probably five or six, whatever that is. At a parent-teacher evening, uh, Mrs. Burns, she was, and I'll be forever grateful to Mrs. Burns, um, bless her, said to my parents, you know, he's got a really great sense of timing. You know, when he's on the tambourine in the music class, he's he keeps everyone in time, you know. And and um, 
So when the, the opportunity for my dad to buy my friend's drum kit, who lived down the road, I used to go around and play his drum kit. When the opportunity to buy that came up, my dad bought it. And um, I literally probably sat behind that thing every day for the next 16 years, you know, because I just loved it wasn't a conscious thing. Oh, I I feel really great when I'm playing. It was just I loved it. I enjoyed it, and there was nothing else in my life other than my family that were were that I had that kind of um, outlook on. Like what there was nothing else that I did regularly, every day, and so they were keen to sort of. My parents were keen to encourage that, and I think they only ever really told me to be quiet a few times it was never you know very rarely and once from an old guy that lived um behind me not here when I was living in Scarborough um fortunately the lady the old lady that lived next door was deaf so she didn't mind the drumming yeah um the the, the people on the other side they didn't mind and they quite liked it and uh, but the guy behind me was he was definitely not happy <laughs> so um but yeah it's it's been a, a wonderful constant throughout my life and you know with this we did we did a, another study just going back to the Clem Burke thing for a second we did once that first study was done on drumming and the brain and the physiology which was uh in conjunction with King's in London Professor Steve Williams let, let us go up and use his MRI machine, you know, on, on lots of, lots of different people who uh, control group who didn't play. And, um, you know, obviously a group that did play and they could see the difference in the, in the brain um, over a period of time. And when, when that was successful, the Waterloo foundation decided that it was worthy of more funding. So the next test that Marcus um, put together was a test with or, um, autistic children and the results of that were absolutely mind-blowing. A lot of them were sort of uncommunicative, locked in. Um, they did 16 weeks of lessons, uh, I think two half-hour lessons a week, and just playing very simple, along to very simple songs. And um, at the end of those 16 weeks, the parents came and and they played along to this song and everyone was in tears because, you know, they, for the first time, in some cases, they were seeing their kids looking round to other children and laughing and, you know, communicating. So that was another very successful sort of re uh, project. And that, in, again, that's in turn has given us more funding uh, to start at some point on a project involving dementia and seeing uh, seeing the effects of drumming on dementia and if obviously not it's not going to cure anything but seeing what the effects are and seeing it, it you know potentially does it have the potential to slow it to slow it down because if you're learning anything you know when you're older you're you're creating new neuro neurological pathways so you know is is the drumming going to be a, a powerful sort of force for good uh, when yeah. it comes to you know aging and you know because obviously physically it's going to keep you moving mm. we know that already but neurologically there's a, there's potential for it to possibly slow down dementia we don't know because we haven't done the study yet but that's the hope <laughs> yeah wow that's exciting isn't it that's yeah uh, that's really yeah, yeah. interesting yeah definitely like for yeah. yourself was it um did you kind of make a, a conscious decision to pursue drumming or was it just something that you kind of ended up 
ended up doing? I think because I got so much joy out of it, it was just something that I I, I fell into. Um, like I say, my friend had a kit. I, I used to go around to his house. I'd play it when I went around to his house and he taught, teach me, taught me the basics. And and then I played at school and there was um, a very, a, a moment at school where my life kind of hit a point where it, it changed direction. And that was supporting the teacher's band at the school dance and we played, I was in a band with some mates and we only played covers and they said, can you play a song before us just on our equipment, you know, just so that there's something on before us. So we, I think we played run to you by Brian Adams and the reaction of the audience was incredible. And, you know, all of those sort of kids that maybe give you a bit of a shove in the corridor and, you know, the, the, um, all their girlfriends were looking at me and I just thought, this is, this is good. I can, I can cope with this. <laughs> so, so, so kind of, you know, popularity became the motive, like not music to start with, you know, it's like, Oh, if I can do this and people like me for that, then that's, that's good, isn't it? You know? So off I went in that direction and um, you know, long story short, little angels, sort of came out of um I was roadieing for them at the time and and uh drummer their drummer well actually an interesting little anecdote uh Stephen Adler from Guns N' Roses was was being was sacked for having for his heroin problem and so Matt Sorum from the cult joined Guns N' Roses and then Michael Lee from Little Angels who I was roadieing for joined the cult so the Little Angels drum stall was wide open and they asked me to join uh, because they knew me and because I knew the songs and it was just convenient and I was a you know a, a lad from Scarborough and and that was the beginning of everything really well our, our, my first professional engagement was the Jim will fix it show can you believe that wow yeah wow indeed yeah <laughs> so yeah enough said enough said about that but um <laughs> but yeah that was the beginning of everything Tom really and mm. um and that was 1991. Um, yeah it's interesting you mentioned the like the uh the popularity aspect of it at first because it like there is so much about music and our identity isn't it whether we're seen at being good at it or what we listen to and how we dress and how we there is mm. there is really um and you know it, having a bit of identity is important but often we kind of attach it to these things that maybe we shouldn't or that doesn't really matter or you know and music does it gets a bit blurry doesn't it quite almost territorial or tribal even I think oh definitely it was definitely tribal you know you know it's the long hair and the tight jeans and the, the big shirts you know it was all very um the end of the sort of hair rock era when I when I started playing and the beginning of grunge kind of is the sort of crossover period you know so um but I, I I didn't realize at the time, but I was definitely filling some kind of hole in my soul that has always been there, uh, and to this day still is. But I I'm aware of that now, and so music has changed. The motive for music has changed for me from from a popularity contest to to one of like I'm I love. Well, it's my job, so I get paid for it. So there's that motive, um, but but also music. You know, the music has become the motive and the music has become the priority. And um, whilst we're not like massively prolific 
band as some bands are releasing an album every year we probably release on an album every couple of years i would say you know um, obviously apart from the the 10 years we were we split up but yeah music is it's a cliche but it's it's on reward and and that that has become the reason that i play when i go and practice drums i don't practice paradiddles or single stroke rolls or rudiments really maybe you know a, f- a few minutes of it I, but i can't bear that stuff i i just play along to my favorite record or i'll just stick spotify on and just play along to what comes up you know and and that really sort of keeps me in a good place you know in terms of it keeps me playing it keeps me my brain kind of like active it's I'm constantly interested in arrangements how arrangements are changing over the over the years you know like my son's uh my son was rapping for a bit and and his songs were like a minute and a half long and it was just a bit of a verse and then all chorus and then it stopped and I'm like I'd say that but that's not a proper arrangement Alan and he'd play me all this stuff that was like getting billions of listens on Spotify that was exactly that you know and I had no idea so but um yeah music's its own reward and and um it's just been a wonderful a wonderful way uh, a wonderful career a wonderful way to spend my life um apart from the the blips obviously there's been a couple of blips along the way yeah 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 so I mean with regards to those blips Mark they, did they yeah. start did they start early on? Was that something that you were kind of um, aware of? Was uh, gathering steam along the way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's I think it's interesting that my early forays to um, the pub and my early experiences with alcohol were I didn't realise it at the time, obviously, but they were about filling that same void. I was always uncomfortable and awkward as a kid wanting to join in but whenever I did try and join in it was just awkward and disastrous so nine times out of ten I just I would keep stum and having a drink allowed me to you know come out of that sort of um come out from behind that mask if you like or maybe put a mask on I don't know <laughs> um it, yeah it was probably more like wearing a mask of confidence it just it, and it's a common story isn't it you know it, it it got rid of the inhibitions and the awkwardness and but it wasn't too long before it started going too far i was yeah just becoming a bit of a, a pain in everyone's ass you know and at the time it was sort of like i mean i think i had my first drink at 14 which isn't that young really but where by the time i was sort of 17 18 and going to the rock club and you know i was i was playing rugby as well so getting wellied after games and and on the weekend at the rock club and uh you know all that sort of stuff and and then and then it's then it's um more regular and uh, and then I sort of ran away and and joined a rock band so it was every night you know and then uh, and at that point you sort of to a certain extent again I wasn't aware of it but I was, I was becoming dependent on it to feel good about myself about the world and I was sort of slowly morphing it you know it's a bit like that that sort of mask that you put on starts to become a permanent fixture or you or you don't ever want to take it off because you can't let anyone see the real you because he's insecure and and he's awkward and he's shy and he's got no confidence really for whatever reason and so yeah it becomes something that 
I became sort of a bit dependent on to feel better about myself. Uh, and then sort of <clears throat> later on, life events, my, my, I got married, I was married, I had a son, that relationship didn't work out. And that's when things went south properly with with the drink and the drugs I didn't I hadn't developed a, a real sort of emotional vocabulary so I couldn't re- I couldn't explain or articulate what was going on in me how I felt how awful I felt how hideous the situation you know I just couldn't explain it the only thing I could do was kind of drown it out really and um and so that's what I did. And uh, that came to a head when, uh, not when I lost, uh, when I, well, I lost the, my wife, I lost the family, I lost the house. I was living in the car for a couple of weeks until I managed to get a hundred percent mortgage on a, on a house. Cause I was still in, I was still in the band, but then skin called me one day and said, look, we can't, this can't, keep we can't keep going like this you know um we've we've got a sort of a duty what she was saying was we have a duty to let you know that we can't enable this behavior we can't enable you to destroy yourself and you know that is they could see the the beginnings of that process and um and she wasn't having any of it you know so as a proper friend uh thankfully you know she sort of gave me an ultimatum, you know, sort it out or we're going to have to get another drummer. So, and drumming was my life. It was, I was defined by my job at that point. I had no idea who, who Mark, Mark Richardson was. I was just the drummer from Skunk and Nancy and Little Angels. And I was that through and through. If you asked me any question, it would, it, it would come back to, if you asked me any question, it would come down to, it would, the answer that would come back at you would be about the band or drumming or wouldn't be about me you know oh I'm fine I'm okay you know I was completely defined by the band so at that point um reached out to the management who helped me find a a therapist on Harley Street who and this, this is a very short version of events but essentially told me well you've become dependent on alcohol and cocaine throughout this period of my marriage collapsing and so you're an alcoholic you need to go to AA or you know you need to stop drinking essentially what he didn't tell me was though that alcohol is the only withdrawal that can kill you and that you need to detox gently so you know if anyone listening to this is struggling with alcohol addiction and they are drinking constantly the thing you shouldn't do is stop one day just out of the blue because a heroin a heroin withdrawal won't kill you but an alcoholic withdrawal might kill you so yeah well Michael Lee um the drummer from Little Angels that's that's what happened to him he died of a, a an alcoholic seizure when he was coming off booze but um yeah so anyway I did I stopped I went to, I went to AA for a couple of meetings and um and then I went in and out of uh, I didn't have a seizure thankfully I went in and out of meetings for the next three years, really. That was 1999. Yeah, I was in and out for three years. So I joined Feed, Skunk and Anty split up during this period, uh, which made things, you know, bad again. Uh, and then I got the call from Feeder to say, will you come and play for us? Because 
well, first of all, that John had killed himself, and then secondly, would I would I sit in the you know the drum stool? And I was struggling this whole time. And finally, I went to a meeting in Farnham, near where I live, and um, I heard this guy speak, and uh, I heard a lot of similarities in what he was saying. I was able to just, you know, discount the the um, the differences, and and I latched onto the similarities, which is what I hadn't done before. You know, it was like, oh no, that's not me. I'm not like that. You know, but something changed. I think I got so desperate um, after another binge um, on a feet on the feeder tour that I, I was just desperate to stop. You know, I just knew it wasn't going to end well. Uh, all you know, and all the drummers, uh, it's worth noting, all the drummers I've taken over from have, have died. So I was kind of like, I don't want to go the same way, you know, and then others as well, um, since then. But, um, oh yeah, and so, um, so yeah, so I heard this, I heard this chap tell his story in a meeting. I heard lots of similarities, something clicked, and I just went and asked him to be my sponsor. So I, all of a sudden I had a sponsor in AA and I was working the steps and of, of AA. Uh, and that for the first time I, I was able to build up some abstinence around alcohol and drugs. And, and that was that, yeah, that was the beginning of my sobriety that I am currently one day at a time touch wood, still enjoying. Yeah. So, and that was 20 years ago. Mate, that's wonderful. So, huh? Yeah. 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 So that's a bit of a long story, but, um, you know, and there's, there's been other things along the way. There was a, there was a point where, um, AA just wasn't getting to the root of, you know, it's like stops. A is, is amazing. Whatever you think of AA, it's, it's not a cult. It's not, um, a religious group. It's, uh, a, you know, a group of drunks really who are getting together and when they're together they don't drink so it works right you know that's yeah. the basic principle of it is you know when and the two founders got together that's what they discovered oh when we're talking we're not drinking when we're talking about drinking we're not drinking so let's maybe get some other people and and it's just spread like that so so yeah that's that was the start of everything and um i haven't looked back really yeah, is it? I always think with like, like culturally, because particularly alcohol, because it's so like readily accepted. Yeah, you can, like I think particularly in the the music industry, right? Like you can hide in plain sight. So yeah, you can absolutely. be absolutely drowning, but because you're with loads of people who, I mean, they might be drowning, you don't know, right? But because you're in a room full of people and everyone's kind of doing the same thing, you can kind of get away with it for a a lot longer, you know, and it's the same, you mentioned yeah. the rugby before, you know, you can be the guy yeah. at the rugby club who's absolutely hammered and, uh, you know, like it, it's, you can, it takes so long to know that you need more help. So, um, yeah. I, I'm a drinker, Mark, I haven't had a drink for seven years. Um, and I had, nice. I now know that I had problems with my mental health, um, like back into like my teens, if not before, I understand that now I've done a lot of therapy. Yeah. I did have, I would never have described myself someone who struggled with their mental health. And I certainly didn't have anything that I would class as a breakdown until I stopped drinking. That's yeah. when shit got hard for me. You know, yeah. like that's when I started like, oh, this is anxiety. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's not been here for years because, uh, you know, I haven't felt it. Um, yeah. 
And that that can be the hardest thing. I'm always interested in in that middle part, right? Because the narrative is always like, oh, life used to be like this, and then I stopped, and now things are great. But there is that that patch, isn't there, in between? That's um, that's like it's a real. You have to learn how to live again without this terrible coping mechanism that you've picked up that's along the way. Exactly, exactly it. Um, we learn to cope by. We learn to not deal with things. We learn to cope with these substances and uh, and our processes that are addictive. And so you take that away and you're left with what's underneath, you know. Now, what I was going to say before is, you know, the recovery groups are amazing. The anonymous groups are amazing, but they deal with stopping the behavior from one day to the next. They don't deal with, well, why was I, why am I doing that in the first place? So I got seven years into recovery and was pretty much suicidal. Sorry, no, I was suicidal. I'd pretty much done everything apart from the actual act itself. And I was talking to my therapist and I uh, I owned this, you know, so probably a cry for help. But um, then I went to a place in Nashville and did some some work on, you know, on the on the other stuff, on the stuff that the emotional kind of baggage that I was carrying that was driving the addictions. So, and that for me is really important work too. It's not for everybody. There's many people that can sit in, in a, an anonymous meeting for the rest of their lives and that's fine for them. They're happy just, they're happy just not using or not, you know, using that, addictive process or uh, substance for that day um but i also know a lot of people that were so miserable in those rooms of recovery because they weren't looking at what was driving the behavior and and that and i was definitely one of those you know i became so i was like this is you know there's something else going on here and i, I have no idea what it is so i went from the advice of my therapist, I went to America and I did this. Um, There's a place called Onsite, actually, and, and they do amazing work there. They do lots of sexual trauma healing. They do PTSD. They work a lot with veterans and they do a, a living centered program, which you can go along um, if you're just feeling a bit miserable to, you know, anything from that to like really seriously depressed kind of thing and just have a look at your life and, do experiential therapy under controlled circumstances with amazing therapists and um you know and work stuff out and and that and that worked for me you know i needed to work that other stuff out that was driving the behavior so for me it was yes um it was aa and na that stopped me drinking and using but i needed to go and do this other stuff to look at what was driving that behavior in the first place yeah and that's and that's really what you know helped me in the long run yeah very much so when did the um the idea for music support start to come about mark was that um as part of that process or after or yeah well it was always i was always um sort of from early recovery i, I always thought that it's got to be easier than this you know because it was it was so difficult to find help there was so much shame around mental health then this is you know 2003 and it's not that long ago and there was so much more stigma and shame around addiction around 
depression you know around anxiety nobody really spoke about anxiety back then you know yeah so there, there was a willingness to try and make that process easier or um i guess raise awareness for the issue and i didn't really know what that looked like and it took a long long time for anything to happen but when amy winehouse died i said to my friend then got to do something who's in the industry recovery industry and um we met up with a couple of other guys so matt thomas who's a record in um record label guy and manager andy franks who's a big time tour manager myself and johan Sorensen all sat around a table um who's uh, johan who was the founder of portobello behavioral health who work out of london and um we sat around the table and came up with this the bare bones of music support just by way of signposting and uh just as an idea to to try and help people who didn't have a clue about where to get help just to try and improve that that's you know that system mm. so we we started music support and we we manned the phones ourselves to start with. It was 24-hour helpline and we just took it in turns to, you know, pick the phone up. Uh, yeah, and, and in 2016, so I think we started talking about it in 2013. 2016, some wonderful people on the staff there did a lot of hard work and got us registered as a charity. Um, cannot take any of the credit for that whatsoever. And... Uh, yeah, and and ever since I was on the board of trustees for a little bit, but I, and I'm not anymore. But it's it's up and running, and it exists, and it does its thing. And uh, Help Musicians UK sort of very shortly after Music Support arrived did a very similar thing. I think they'd been thinking about it for a while, but they they didn't actually do anything about it until Music Support came on the on the scene. And yeah, and and we day-to-day provide a a, a helpline um we have safe tents safe hubs at a lot of the uk festivals now which is a place for crew and band alike to go and just sit in a quiet space away from everything and if they're having a a shit time or they just need a you know a, a, a rest from the craziness they can just go and sit in there and have a, a chat and and signposting you know a lot of a lot of signposting mental health training so mental health first aid training uh, through M- through um mfa M- sorry mhfa uh, mental health first aid england and um yeah it's brilliant i'm it's something i'm really really proud of of having i don't have any ha- can't take credit for the day to day running of it in any way but i was you know one of the four people that sat down and said we've got to do something you know and, and that turned into music support so i'm very very proud of that yeah it's a beautiful thing it really is there's a couple of things really that kind of stood out and you know you talk about signposting there and it's so true and earlier on when you were talking about 
uh, your own experience and you mentioned not having the vocabulary and it's mm. like those two things combined right because the whole mental health space is all about like you have to talk to someone and like most people myself very much included would have been well i don't know what to say and even if i did i don't know who to fucking say it to right they're yeah. the, the two things right how do you talk when you don't know what to say and you don't know who to say it to and it's like yeah. so to to make that process as simpler for people then it just it's such a difference isn't it having that that availability exactly you know and if i'm if you'll allow me to blow my own trumpet for one minute um i got we were playing at a festival in switzerland and all of a sudden this bloke jumped on my back you know like gave me this great big hug and it was somebody that um i'd spoken to on the phone in the very early days of the helpline and the signposting was you know if there's medication involved maybe you know book a uh he'd, he'd been in a car with the hose pipe in the window and he just wanted to everything to stop you know he just wanted just wanted to, the world to stop so he could get off you know um he for some reason he called music support first the um, suggestion was that he go to his gp and check on his meds and of course his meds were all wrong he was messed up and um, they put his meds, they changed his meds, they reallocated, you know, re-looked at them and changed them and and he was fine. And, um, you know, he, he ran up to me and gave me this great big hug and, and I'd known him from years before. And we hadn't, I hadn't known it, that it was him on the phone. And um, so that was really lovely. So for me, all of the work was just worth it in that one hug because, you know, we changed the course of someone's life and and that's all i ever wanted it to do if it, if i always said if it if it saves one person's life then it's worth it i always said if it saved one person's life then it'll be worth it and uh and we did so it was and i'm really really proud of that yeah and rightly so uh, rightly so i think when like people are in that dark place and you kind of almost come into the end of, of the road and like just having i don't know just a phone number that you can read, like just having that a phone line of any, of any sort. It's yeah. just, it's that, it's that little glimmer of hope, isn't it? That just gives someone like an hour, buys them an hour and that hour can make all the difference. It's like, absolutely. You know, yeah. 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 And, and it's, well, you know, in that case, you know, it's just like, well, let me call this number first. You know, he'd obviously heard of it from somebody and um, he had it, I don't know, in his mind or in his pocket or whatever. But um, if that option hadn't been there, then he neither would, he probably wouldn't be either, you know. Mm. So it it is sort of amazing to have all of these incredible resources around us, you know, those of us that live with um, uh, mental illness and mental health challenges. Uh, um, we need that support. We don't necessarily use it all the time, but my God, it's great to have it when we do. Yeah. That, that, yeah. One of the biggest challenges is that you could tend to only find out about it. Like every time I meet someone new from a charity or hear about this organization, I was thought, Oh fuck, I wish I knew about this. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? You don't know yeah. about it till you need to, or till it's too late, you know? And I think that's something that it, part of the awareness conversation that really needs to change is that you need to be able to know, you know, if someone breaks into your house, you know how to ring the police, right? We all know that. Then it, yeah. it, there's like the, the mental health equivalent. That's kind of the next, the next step, I suppose. But uh, yeah. 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 There was um, 
a child line did it really well, didn't they? With mm. with Esther Ranson back in the day. That that was I can't remember what the number is now, but um, it was like triple one or something like that. Or or is that no? That's NHS, isn't it? But anyway, it was something really easy if you're a kid and you're in trouble. But you know, she had the benefit of of four channels of TV back then, and like she was on prime time Saturday night every week you know talking about childline and like you yeah. know spreading the word sort of thing so it's back when the, there was money to spend was, people had money when, to spend back when there was money to spend and back when people's attention were like just there was only four places that people's attention were you know were set at we're looking mm. at you know like four channels of tv and and god now it's just infinite isn't it it's the yeah, amount of that's it. S- stuff so um it's Esther. a lot harder i think to there's a lot more noise to get through before you can raise your head above it. So, really so to speak. is, yeah. Old Esther will be trying to go viral on TikTok or something, wouldn't you, to uh, <laughs> to get to get the message out? But yeah, uh-huh. I wanted to. Um, while we're on music support, I just wanted to touch on um, the uh, Taylor Hawkins concert from last year because you guys were um, sort of uh, what was it like attached? That were you a beneficiary of that, or how did ben- that that work? A beneficiary, yeah. We yeah. Um, in the early days we took a lot of advice from music cares. So that's um, our our American counterpart and the charity who we looked up to and took a lot of our ideas from, really, you know, in terms of how we structured the charity. So when Taylor died and uh, the families got together and they said, who do, you know, who do we want this fundraising to go to? Um, it was music cares and music support and um, it was completely out of the blue it was totally decided by them we had nothing to do with it we just the the office got a call one day and and um, they were informed that that was going to happen so um, I've I have no I I have I, I was absolutely gobsmacked you know that 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 they a knew about us and B chose us as beneficiaries. You know, obviously, I'd rather Taylor was still alive. Um, of course, but uh, to have to be, to be chosen as a beneficiary of the concert was yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's sort of yeah, it's it it <clears throat> it sort of came, you know, it's like a statement of like, well, you know, people know about you all over the world now, so. Mm. It was like you've arrived, sort of thing, in terms of charity and your sort of place in the global arena. It's kind of like, well, you're there, you've got a place, you know. So, yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Oh, mate, that's awesome. There's um, I've, yeah. there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about, and I'm, I'm conscious of your time, Mark. So I'm not going to try and segue. Right. I'm just going to ask you, ask you straight <clears> out. That's all right. Know. No worries. Um, I've, but I've got the, time. Oh, mate, that's awesome. But playing with Pavarotti for the Dalai Lama. Yeah. How how did that come about, mate? What was the what was the story there? Um well it was it was just um a promotional thing that we got asked to do. Um uh my memory of that time is not great, I, I will be honest. Um slap back reason, in the middle of one of for, those for blips, reasons we've we've talked about, yeah. But uh but um we were asked to we were big in Italy, we did really well in Italy, and so I think the label asked us um put us forward for this uh Tibetan children's fund concert 
Pavarotti normally did a war child concert every year, but this year it was for the, the Tibetan Children's Fund. So the Dalai Lama was there, Pavarotti was there. Steve Gadd was the drummer in the in the house band, which just blew my mind meeting him. Oh, excuse me. And there's a couple of couple of little stories. We had our picture taken with the Dalai Lama. And I was last in the room and the Dalai Lama was, was on the end. So I just went, I got on the end of the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the setup for the photo shoot. And um, he just put his arm around me and just, and he just looked at me and said, it's going to be okay. I'd never, met, I'd never met the guy before. <laughs> so there was that. And this is in the period of going in and out of, of recovery. And then the next day in queue to get on the plane i was reading uh, the big book of alcoholics anonymous with, but just a, a little version you know a, li- a little big book and uh this this arm comes round my shoulder uh, with a phone number on it and um you know it's it's steve gadd who's famously uh, been in recovery for many many years and he just slotted his number into the pages of that little big book and um just said if you ever need any if you ever need me just call you know and uh, which is ha- which is how it works you know so the your kind of remit as a recovering addict is to help the the you know the still suffering addict so if someone reaches out their hand for help it's it's my honor and my privilege to reach out my hand to to help them and to show them my journey and you know so that was that that was um a, a wonderful sort of gesture from him it was a wonderful thing for for him to do being as you know as famous and as popular in the drumming world as as he is you know and the other thing was being spoon fed balsamic vinegar by pavarotti but maybe we shouldn't go into that <laughs> <laughs> one for another time is it mate? That's, yeah. that's for another day oh mate yeah <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There we go. Mate, it's been a, a real pleasure chatting to you today, mate. Thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, been lovely to to meet you. We um Thank just you. before we were we recorded, we you kind of mentioned that you the band are starting to do little bits, is it? You were thinking about getting um back on the bus almost. Yeah, so we did um a few festivals this uh summer gone and um we started writing the year before that after the after the tour the year before that so we've well we've been writing on and off since the last uh, full album and architecture which was a long time ago now 2016 i think so like i say we're we're not like prolific in terms of chucking out albums at all but um we've got a lot of material so yeah we've been we went and did our first uh, recording session in la uh, a few weeks ago and that went really well so you know we just need to keep recording and we'll have something out probably next summer and then back on the road next November. So hopefully I can get the, the extension built before then. <laughs> yeah. puts the pressure on when you've got to go back to work. Bu- right? Builders are too expensive. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. But... Do it myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mate, yeah. Thank you for your time today, mate. It's been, um, it's been, yeah, it's been lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
to big up to the proper mental podcast. <laughs> the proper mental podcast. <laughs>